The presenting sponsor of On Education is Participate. Lately, teachers from all over have been working together to find new approaches to provide quality remote education. Participate's sister company, Participate Learning, presents United We Teach, a global gathering place for educators to share distance learning resources as we navigate these strange times. For these resources and more, visit participate.com slash oneducation. What kind of psychopath gets coffee at 8 o'clock at night? Welcome to On Education, part of the On Podcast Media Network. My name is Mike Washburn. And I'm Glenn Irvin. Friends, we have an awesome pod for you today. We will debate the implications of Trump's patriotic education, discuss why the presidential candidates are not talking about education, and our guests this week are educator and author Kyle Anderson and global education consultant Jennifer Geist. We went from having no guests to two guests. <laughs> and in awesome. fact, we're going to have two guests next week, too. So, hey. boy, oh, boy. We're making up for it. <laughs> it's all happening. Hey, by the way, go check out our Twitter um, page. Page? Is that what you call what Twitter is? Sure. Go check out, go check out our Twitter <laughs> feed. Um, we just actually listed kind of the next, um, you know, month or so, month and a half's um, guests. And... Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, I mean, we've went through periods where we've had, like, just absolutely killer guests kind of nonstop. This is, this like, the next, two, the next two months are crazy, mm. crazy good. Um, <laughs> I, I'm so excited uh, about the next couple months. We're booked basically solid until the end of the year. Um, mm-hmm. When you add in, you know, the guests that um, we will um, part, we we partner with FETC um, at the end of the year to to work with them on on some podcasts. Um, so we'll get some guests, uh, hopefully the keynoters and, and stuff like that for the conference. Um, but we are more or less booked right until January. So my job here is done. <laughs> You just show up. <laughs> right. Now all we need is $215 million. Like, hashtag, hashtag segue. Yeah, that was um, fantastic. <laughs> all that we need is $215 million. Like, Kahoot just got. Holy crap. It's, it's so That's a crazy. lot of money. Well, They're yeah, worth $2.2 billion. Two, they are worth more than when Amazon bought Twitch. Amazon wow. bought Twitch for a billion dollars. Just for context, Kahoot is worth $2.2 billion now. I, I mean, could Ooh. you have ever imagined back in the beginning days of Kahoot that, that <laughs> they would be worth that amount and they would be getting these huge investments to continue to basically uh, uh, build up the company and They've proven me wrong. I've I've actually I always thought Kahoot was cheesy. <laughs> you know, it was it was okay. You know, for what it did, it was you know as far as it being a uh, take on a gamification game show. Um, and I thought it would. They, it w- I actually for sure have said on this show. I know I have that it's very limited. You know, in mm. what it actually can do, and that it can become. Um, May like not be you, limited for long. 
Yeah, I know. And if you use it too often, it can be like, uh, it can just get redundant and not exciting anymore for the kids. But hell, I was wrong because my goodness, they have got their stuff together to be able to go ahead and build the company up to this size. I mean, this is bigger than some learning management systems, Mike. This is bigger than the the things that we think of as far as the things that have the huge infrastructure that have all the different pieces that schools, you know, almost at this time they uh, have to invest in. This is an, an extra, an add on a yeah. something else. And it must be through ad revenue, right? I mean, I'm trying to think of like cahoots. I am sure there maybe nowadays is a premium version that, that is available. Uh, like that a you licensing can purchase, probably. Right? Yeah. There's a right? licensed version of it, but there's also has to be some kind of, they gotta be think... making some sort of money. I don't know Dude. about how, but it's not just about the amount. The amount, the amount is huge. I mean, yes. the amount is so big. I can't even get the word amount out of my mouth. Um, <laughs> it's a giant amount of money. I I can just just imagine the things I would do with two hundred and fifteen million dollars. Um, <laughs> buy a boat, but uh, <laughs> buy a boat and sail it to the Caribbean exactly. like Jed Geist. That's what exactly. I'd do. Um, <laughs> Listen, $215 million is a lot of money, but yes. SoftBank, which is the company that actually did the investment, yes, they are a giant player in venture capital, like mm. probably even close to the biggest, like up there with like Berkshire Hathaway mm. and any of the other big players, SoftBank is a giant in this. So for them to be the ones that are... Giving Kahoot two hundred fifty by buying in yes nine point seven percent of Kahoot for two hundred fifteen million dollars, um and and yeah, that's just it says a lot like like it might be worth two point two billion right now based on the valuation, mm-hmm. but it's not going to stay at two point two billion for long not not with that amount of money and who's involved in you know the investment, um it says a lot. So, I mean, congratulations to yes. Kahoot, I, My I guess. Goodness. I mean, it's it's um, just... It's, more than happy to start putting together some commercials for them for on education if yeah, they want to go guys, ahead and <laughs> please guys, reach out. <laughs> guys, guys, yo, Kahoot, slide into those DMs, friends. <laughs> I was thinking about this too, Mike. What are the implications, and maybe uh, you have some thoughts on this, on other... Um, par- players in this space. You know what I mean. Uh, there's we we've we've actually you know had discussions about uh you know Gimkit for example. Yes. And there's a whole bunch of other uh that are you know maybe not exactly in the exact same space, but are players in this kind of game show gamification elements where review games. You know, mm-hmm. basically for for kids. I was thinking about deck toys Qu- also quizzing. Quizzing, those kinds of things, Quizlet, Quizalize, those kinds of, of companies, or anybody else that's maybe thinking about starting one of these kind of things, it's got to be, it's got to legitimize, right? All yes. of those, the whole space, it's got to legitimize the whole, that that's, that kind of side uh, thing that people maybe got or maybe didn't buy or buy, you know, as far as schools, it's legitimizing all of that. Yeah. I mean, as as you know, someone who works for a digital learning platform, yeah, um, you know, and and that is part of this context as well is that all digital learning platforms are experiencing 
some sort of growth. I can just, um, I would love, so I guess my, my initial thought, um, had to do with participate, um, because that's where I work. Sure. And, and this idea that, you know, it would be lovely if a similar amount of attention was paid to the educator, um, as it is to the students. So like Kahoot is student facing GimKit is student facing Quizlet student facing, sure. um, um, Edmodo even is, you know, student facing all of these things, all of these platforms that have gotten like fairly large investments are student facing. Um, but the reality is, is that, you know, a platform like participate is, is educator facing mm. is, is a place where educators learn together and from each other and with um, the groups and partners that we work with. And it would be lovely to see um, some attention paid to that space as well. Um, because I think that um, just as much as we need to obviously focus on the students there. And I mean, you're going to hear us talk to Kyle who is, is talking about, you know, um, you know, professional learning on, yes. you know, rolling out a new learning management system and how educators are, some educators are feeling pretty overwhelmed at the moment with all of the initiatives and tools and services that they have to learn just to basically do their job remotely. And, you know, a platform like Participate can help with that um, and help your school district and whatever. So, you know, I didn't mean this to delve into a bit of a commercial for Participate. <laughs> I, but I totally get what you're saying, though. I, but I think it's part of the context. Sure. Um, of, the, you know, that, that, you know, the one of the major growth sectors in education is is learning platforms. Um, mm -hmm. But most of the learning platforms that are getting attention right now are student facing. And, you know. Teachers need a little love in this, and and I'll tell you, like I said, the things I do with two hundred fifteen million dollars <laughs> blow your freaking minds. <laughs> Trust me, please. Talk about blowing your mind. Oh God! Did you, we didn't mention this because just so many things happened over. There's <laughs> just so much going over, on. Over, yeah, over the last few weeks, but a few weeks ago. Yes, I, I, and I, I think it came out in a tweet like everything else does, as far as uh, uh, President yes. Trump is concerned. <laughs> um, and he put out this tweet about basically we need to uh, change the way that education is done. And this, there was a lot of context here re regarding um, uh, you know, black, black Lives Matter movement, um, the the concepts of being able to discuss like what is going on in the world and, and why are we at, you know, why are we where we are, you know, basically, and then making sure that we have those honest conversations with our students and, and kind of the flip side of that is this thing called patriotic education. <laughs> and as I read it through what patriotic education supposedly is, I was like, and I had a lot of conversations with uh, educators, both uh, on social media and, you know, obviously within my school district too. And it, it, you can't help but to look at it and go, this is not patriotic education. This is like uh, nationalism and things that aren't too far away from things that happened in, uh, you know, in Germany, uh, 
you know, previous to World War II. And, and I know you're an expert at, at as far as, as th- those topics. But I was I was like, this is scary. That's all I could think of. That was my my first initial thing as I read through the thing. I was like, it it is interesting to go ahead and, and refer to it as patriotic, just like a lot of things these days are. You know, if you don't do this, you're not patriotic or so on and so forth. You know, kind of the uh, that's kind of what's even in the in the national politics. But this just as you look through it, you were like, what the heck? This is so similar to Nazi Germany. And that's why I wanted to make sure I asked someone who actually knows some stuff about this, you. <laughs> do you so what do you think about this? Yeah. Do you know what Goodwin's Law is? No. <laughs> I probably should. I don't know. Okay. What is it? No, 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 no. Yeah. no it's, it's fine that you don't. Okay. So Goodwin's Law is the idea that uh, in the in in a conversation, um, usually online, yeah, you know something like a Reddit discussion or whatever, especially a heated Reddit discussion. Okay, it's that the longer the discussion goes, the probability increases of the eventual comparison to Nazis or Hitler. <laughs> 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 it's Goodwin's Law. You'll eventually get to Hitler. Okay. So, but in this case, is this is that what's happening here? In this case, <laughs> I have never seen. I have, you know, I have fought so hard sure. to avoid Goodwin's Law over the last four years, as someone that, like you've said, and I. I know a lot about this. <laughs> like yeah, I'm not no. a hist- I'm not a historian. I am not but you're a, passionate about you this. know, but yeah. I I studied a lot of this, like way too much. Um and so, you know, I see it. I've seen it tons of times. Even just like I I hate even comparing like Stephen Miller to 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 Goebbels. They look exactly the same. I mean, for God's sake. It's so crazy um that I don't even understand it. But um I've never seen more Nazi slash um fascist tendencies mm. from the Trump administration than we've seen in the last two weeks. And it's become it's come to the point where it's so hard not to yeah. um, delve into like Goodwin's law territory. <laughs> um, this patriotic education is so like SS material that it's not even funny. No. Um, and when like I, and I had to, I like, I, and I just went off the rails a couple days ago when he went up onto that balcony um, oh, after Lord. he got back from the hospital and stood there and like the comparison to Mussolini mm. standing on his balcony, like the go look at the picture yeah. of Mussolini standing on the balcony and his facial expressions and just the way he stood there. Like I own these people and this is my world and don't you dare, you know, that's exactly what he looked like, like mm. in almost every way. And I, it just, it, it was jarring to me. And I'm not, I'm not talking about this, like, even though yeah. like it's, it's kind of funny. Goodwin's law is, 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 is a little bit tongue in cheek, but 
it was the immediately the first thing I thought of. I saw that picture of Trump standing on the balcony, staring out over kind of his domain, mm-hmm. ripping that mask off. Yeah. Um, and I saw I saw Mussolini instantly. Um, and uh, I knew exactly the picture I was looking for. And I went and found it. And, and I posted it on, I can't remember if I posted it on Twitter, but I definitely posted it on Facebook. I'm a little more politically aggressive on Facebook than I am on Twitter, <laughs> <laughs> but not much. I mean, to be honest, <laughs> um, but I, uh, it was, it was so clear. And I mean, this is nothing but a political, um, you know, dog whistle. Yes. Um, to rile up um i don't know i don't know how much i want to say it to rile up the south to get the votes that he needs to get because he's desperate because he's losing um Mm -hmm. his base is like 32 to 37 percent and that's just not enough to win. No. The reason why he won in 2016 is undecideds who thought that his hard stance against like China and like they were convinced it was it was um, desperate white people with very little education. And there's lots of these in the United States um, voting overwhelmingly for Trump sure. when in 2012 and in 2008 they would have probably voted for obama and Mm. in 2020 it really looks like a lot of them are voting for biden because they trust biden don't don't jinx us though no i mean (laughs) i'm also trying to not get into the prediction business though i do watch i do look at 538 um probably 15 times a day um (laughs) and it's up to 86 percent i mean but i'm i i if if when it was at 80-20, sure. uh, I said to Cheryl, 20%, it's one in five. Yeah, that's still a lot. Just because someone has a 20% chance of winning um, does not mean... A, 20% and zero are very different. Big time. Obviously, I'm not a math guy or anything, but I don't know. 20, 20%, 0%, big difference, right? That's my math. That's... Math with Mike, um, and and so, um, no, I'm not, you know, counting my chickens before they hatch, sure. or anything like that. But man, we've got to stop this. Um, we need, we need, um, we need education. Yes, we do in in the world, but certainly in the West, more than we've ever real legitimate truth telling, you know. Um, Tell um, the whole story. Honest, honest exactly. um, education more desperately than any time ever. And, and just, f- yeah. And, and just, I was just thinking about too, Mike, because I, I, I know that in our interview at one point, I think we get into Columbus Day just a little bit. Mm, yeah. But I, but I was just thinking about that there's this certain specific narrative that mm. I grew up even with that was in the in our books, in our history books, and and basically it painted a nice, I want to call it a nice picture of the history of this of our country, of the United States, I'm talking about. Sure. And the, the his, there's there's great moments 
And then there's just some ugly things too. And it's good to go ahead and make sure you work through all of those things. Yeah. As an educator, especially that you give all of those different truths and and that you have your your students learn them because otherwise then what ends up happening is that what is currently the situation, which is a lot of people that don't even understand why there would be protests of Black Lives Matter. Uh, they don't understand that there, it was a pretty, uh, for a long, long period of time, and still continues to this day in the United States, it's, it's really ugly for a lot of people. <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm talking about a lot of of our minorities, um, and so we need to talk about that, work through it, and then talk about how do we actually um, make this better for everyone, not just for some people, you know. And what this patriotic education was, as it mentioned in this article several different times, is basically it wants to paint this specific one story. And it wants to tell this one story, this thread of story, that really isn't the truth. <laughs> it's yeah. it, it has some truths in it, but it isn't the, the truth. And it and it is definitely a nice story to tell if you want to continue um, basically justifying the way that things are. You know, if you are privileged and 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 you are living a, a good, decent life, whatever it might be, and you haven't had to go through these things and you don't want to learn any of those things, it's a great way to not have to teach your kids these things for us to mention them at school and so on and so forth. So really ugly. I, I mean, as far as just the thought of a president saying, this is what we're going, this is, this is the curriculum you're going to teach. It's like, Wow. That's crazy yeah. ass stuff. Yes. Yeah. And I mean Republicans for 20 years have they've had this figured out in a lot of ways. They've not only have they um worked incredibly hard to modify um own control dominate, you know, the curriculum, the actual content. Mm. But at the very same time, they work very hard at undermining the structures and systems of education in the country mm, for sure um, through funding and, yes. and, and services and social safety nets and stuff like that. So they're, they're working it from both sides, you know, trust this curriculum, but you know, let's destroy the system at the same time. Ugh. Okay. And they've been doing this very well um, since Reagan, to be honest, um, you know, a lot of uh, friends, if you don't believe me, just, I mean, I'm just a Canadian who <laughs> knows way too much, but, but your problem started with Reagan and even a little bit before that, but Reagan started this all and, and it's a, it's been, it's been progressively worse ever since. Um, but you know, um, as much as, you know, so Trump talks about education because he wants to undermine, because, you know, a lot of educators are generally left, um, and he wants to undermine that. Yes. Um, yes. While also continuing to ensure he knows, well, he might not know, because I'm not sure he knows anything, <laughs> but his his people know, the smart mm. people in the Republican Party, and there are smart people that yep. are Republicans, know that their primary voting block are non-college-educated white people. Mm. And they want to keep people non-college educated. 
they're not like like that's why they undermine the system is because the less education you have the less likely you are to 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 veer left okay and so you know that's why trump talks about education and i just thank god every friggin' day that if <laughs> biden wins the presidency yep. the first lady of the united states is going to be a teacher absolutely and yes. that is like i feel like that's monumental for and sure it would be so exciting um to have someone that's always got the ear of the president um and is always you know that that tweet that she sent last week um, about universal broadband just went all over the place. And I was so excited to see it um, where, where someone said, you know, that universal broadband should be part of a platform. And Jill Biden was the one who weighed in. And she said, I'm on it is what she said. <laughs> and, and, and she also said, and I'm talking to Joe and he's listening. Uh, and to be able to like, that made me huge have hope. Um, and that's, it's so exciting. It was the same excitement that I had thinking about, you know, Chastin Buttigieg, um, you know, if for somehow, you know, had Pete won the nomination and then had won the presidency, uh, Chastin Buttigieg is a school teacher. Yes. And that would have been monumental um, in so many ways. And, and so we have educators um, because, I mean, Listen, if you didn't know, Pete Buttigieg is going to be a secretary of something in this administration. He's easily been one of their best pundits, advocates, whatever you want to call it. Um, um, But, you know, we are going to have educators in the administration. And that is just so so exciting. That's so So important. So exciting. Uh, There's an article that talked about, basically, it said, why aren't the candidates, specifically the Democrats, we're talking about talking Mm. more about education, because Trump does bring up something about education all the time. Here, yeah. it, basically, yeah. his platform is this. It's this patriotic education, which was one of the things. But even before that, it's always been we have to get all of the students back to school. That That's actually part of his platform, I would say. If you listed the top 10 things that he says repeatedly, that is one of the things. Um, it, it doesn't – that's a weird thing to – run on you know but that's you know one of the many things that i think riles people up because they can see their kids are uh, a lot of kids are either doing a hybrid system or they're still doing a, a virtual learning because of of the state of uh, covid and so parents want their kids back and so that's a, something an easy sell i guess that's a, a good way to think of it i i do I, 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 now that you were speaking about Jill Biden and and just the the ability for someone to speak to the president that was an actual school teacher in a public school and understands the the topics and understands and wants to make it better for everyone, you know, as far as us yep. in, in, in educators, that is fantastic, and I do wish that. We talked more about what we should be doing as far as in education, talking about, you know, the movement away from standardized testing, um, things like, you know, what what kinds of things do we have set up so that we have multiple ways of being able to 
into career fields. Uh, I think mm-hmm. Pete Buttigieg actually was one of the greatest, uh, had one of the greatest ideas and plans as far as um, getting kids to just buy in civically to the United States. And so as far as being uh, having a year of service after they graduate, uh, whether it be in the Peace Corps, in the military, or some other type of thing to be able to basically have us reinvest back into our country as young people. And and when we do that, the thought is you care more about what's actually happening and you become civic-minded. Um, just in general, like you've said before, Mike, as far as the teaching of civics in general and how that's we've not done a very good job of that as far as in the United States. And, and it shows. We just don't know a lot. We don't vote. Very, you know, a huge population doesn't even vote uh, each uh, election. And so just those types of things, I, I think the more that we push towards that, it, both on the national agenda, but then specifically because it's so influential, the state agendas and then obviously the local uh, politics too, to make sure that we continue to put education as one of the top priorities of, of, of funding of just what, what we actually are discussing and making sure that we do the best thing for uh, our students. That would be amazing. Super exciting. Um, listen, friends, this is a big episode. Um, yes. When we come back, uh, we will have Jennifer Geist from QFI, and then we will have educator Kyle Anderson. So stick with us. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Jennifer Geist is a global education consultant and curriculum developer. She collaborates with teachers, schools, and foundations to help them engage students in our time of tons of critical issues. Uh, Among her many partnerships is working with Qatar Foundation International. Welcome to the podcast, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Uh, it's my pleasure. So, Jennifer, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners a little bit? Tell us um, your a bit of your background and and what brought you to us today. Okay, great. Well, um, I'll start with what brought uh, brought me here today. I think is my work with Participate, and um, I design uh, a lot of the professional development. Uh, that, that we offer, that QFI offers, QFI is Qatar Foundation International. Um, the, the professional development opportunities that QFI offers on Participate are, um, largely my design and most of them, interestingly, are, um, courses that I developed after having led programs. Um, for several years for QFI, where we were directly engaging with youth and really getting good at virtual exchange. And we had so much trial and error. QFI is like a laboratory for uh, innovating. And we had all the, I did 10 years of trial and error uh, and decided we made a, to make a shift. And instead of doing that sort of high touch programming, um, where we were uh, working directly with students, we decided let's take everything we learned and create some really cool courses for teachers who are interested in virtual exchange and really try to meet them where they're at. And, um, so we offer this variety of courses that all grew out of our direct experience and our projects. But I started out um, back in 
two, uh, let's see, I was a Spanish teacher um, up until about 1990, yeah, 2000, the year 2000, I, uh, no, pardon me, 2003, I left the classroom and I got involved with a Department of Education professional development grant that was teaching us way back then how to do uh, online collaboration. And hmm. I've just been sort of on a vertical learning curve ever since, trying to keep up with um, technology and all the amazing things we can do now um, to connect internationally without getting on a plane. That's amazing. I, I mean, so 2003, you've been basically talking about and working in kind of online, remote learning, distance learning, which is, you know, everything that everyone's talking about right now since, you know... 2003 there's obviously a lot of focus on this right now um and you've been doing it for years um so as with most people i think COVID has caused a lot of reflection a lot of people are just kind of thinking about their priors about what they thought about online learning about what they thought they knew and uh you know i heard someone say the other day that everything i thought i knew how to do is all wrong and someone even said i had all of these ideas about what i would do if i taught full-time online and I've been now that I'm doing basically full time online teaching, I've realized I didn't have a clue what I was talking about, <laughs> um, which is which is wild. Um, I'm curious if your thoughts on remote learning on online learning have evolved or changed and, and kind of what are you thinking about now as kind of the world in a lot of places is all learning online? Yeah, that is just such a great question for right now. And I, I, I've had so many conversations myself with different people about, you know, what's happening for them. And, and really, I feel like we are all, you know, my mom taught us when we made spaghetti um, to take the spaghetti and throw it at the ceiling. And if it's stuck, then it was ready. And I, so I keep, I always have this metaphor in my mind of like, you just throw everything up at the ceiling and see what sticks. And, and I feel like that's a place where a lot of people are right now. I, I tell you, you know, you know, what's funny is that, um, you probably haven't listened to On Education, but anyone who's listening, who had listens to On Education understands that metaphor completely oh. because we've, we've referenced throwing spaghetti against the wall probably every show the last couple of weeks. So, you know, we're with yeah <laughs> oh that's crazy that is so funny yeah. it's so it's funny really it, that is really funny yeah I, <laughs> I I do feel often like that's what we're doing and yes. one of the beauties of 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 this time I think is that um, I what I'm witnessing amongst my colleagues and, um, and 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 even amongst friends is we are so much more forgiving of each other because we all know that we're kind of out on a limb right now. Yeah. And we're all mm. just doing the best we can. And with that grace also get, comes some latitude to be experimental and to try it, to throw it against the wall and see what sticks. Yeah, and sure. um, I think what I'm hearing is that really resonates with me is, you know, you know how um, personalized learning was the, um, really the flavor du jour gaining a lot of um, uh, traction in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, what I'm hearing from talking with 
my colleagues and friends is that keeping a personal connection is is it feels like the biggest challenge because you're, you don't have that face-to-face contact and um and and maybe you can't read body language and and read moods the way you can when you when you have your students in your classroom and and also when you just come together on zoom you really have no idea what was going on for a person 15 minutes ago before they logged on Whereas if you're in a school building, you kind of do have more of a sense of what someone's day is like. Sure. Now, given that, um, I, I feel like we we are being asked to be a lot more em- empathetic and a lot more uh, gracious and generous with each other, in that knowing that we really don't know how what other people's experiences are. And I think that's um, making personalized learning really, really come to really flower in a way. The the irony, obviously, is that personalized learning used to just be framed around, you know, the pedagogy in terms of like what they were actually learning, like the, the content. I'm going to personalize this content for you and this content for you and this content for you. And you're all going to get and that was personalized learning. Um, but now, you know, I think. You know, I love what you're saying is that personalized learning is we're we're talking about the whole person and we're talking about the fact that, you know, not every kid can have their camera on uh, while they're in a Zoom call with their teacher because maybe their house is like, you know, a disaster. Maybe it's it's nothing. Maybe they barely have a house and they just don't want they they have this one thing that the school gave them um, so that they can so that they can like, um you know, do online learning, but, you know, you, they're, they're just ashamed of, of, you know, their surroundings. And there's, so that's real personalized learning. That's, that's not just talking about the content that's talking about the person and the, the learner context. and the, and the teachers too, because I think sure. there's a lot of talk about teachers and personalized. I don't know if we want to call it personalized teaching, but we're, we're thinking about the whole person a little bit more, I think right now. Yeah, we're really we're being forced to. I think that's one of the real beautiful um, upshots of uh, or, of of the whole thing, and and you know, to I, I like change personally, and uh, I think change is good, and I, I think change really brings out um, the the creative parts of us, and and that those are my positive uh, insights about what's going on, and I think this is all. Um, I think we were going to experience a huge shift in education anyway with technology. I think we already have, and I think we're going to continue on this really kind of vertical trajectory here. But this really, really uh, forced us all to kind of, um, uh, I want to say up our ante, uh, it upped the ante. But I, I don't even think that's true. I think the stakes were always high in education because we have a huge responsibility, um, a social responsibility. But now, um, somehow we are, uh, uh, with these circumstances, we're really forced to ask ourselves, why do we educate? What's the purpose? And therefore, what do I need to do as a teacher or administrator or any kind of support? Like I, I do support, what's most important and what can I do to support that? You know, it's really gotten us back down to basics, I guess. Yeah. Super interesting. Um, 
Jennifer, the United States in particular and the world in general is and and certainly I'm Canadian and we're we're having these conversations in Canada as well, coming to a sort of a reckoning uh, is the word I've been using anyways, in terms of race and social justice. Um, the conversation right now centers primarily around black people of color, but I can't help but think back to the years immediately after 9-11 when there was a lot of anti-Arab racism going on. And not that that's gone away um, at all either. Um, I'm a pretty strong believer in the power of community to change people's minds um, and help bring people together. And, And I'm curious about your thoughts around that uh, you know i know that you manage the you know the qfi community but maybe about the just the power of you know bringing people together that don't have shared knowledge and giving them that shared knowledge and that shared understanding um is 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 super powerful right right yeah um yeah, it's interesting you say that. I, I feel like um, as I watch, you know, what's going on right now with Black Lives Matter and um, and definitely reckoning, that's that's a word I would use too. Um, I, I definitely draw lots of parallels to what we've experienced over the years with um, uh, Arabs and Islamophobia, you know, and, and Muslims. Yeah. And, you know... I had a conversation with once with someone who was sort of uh, railing against uh, Muslims, kind of fear mongering, like how we have. And it was very shortly after nine eleven, and um, and I and it was well before I worked for QFI, and I had a couple of Arab friends, but not um, not like I do now. And I can remember saying to that person, um, "Wow, how many Muslims do you know?" and the conversation was shut down. That was it. The conversation was over and the person's face just went blank. Like, Oh wow. They realized in that moment, I don't know a single Muslim. And here I am blaming this group of people. Um, and, and and with really, um, no basis. And so I, you know, to your point, like if we know each other, we're not afraid of each other. In, I would say that is like 99.99% true. Um, so the way to get to know each other um, one way is in community, right? And creating communities where people who um, are, are different can come together and get to know each other. You know, that's another thing that can be challenging. Sometimes we get very siloed and we just hang out with like-minded people whether it's race or religion or political. And we then we get all stuck in our silos. We don't talk to anybody outside of our group. And then if things start to go sideways, you just look for a group to blame. It happens mm-hmm. over and over and over again. Well, if we could blend, you know, create more blended communities, it would just be so much less likely to um, even... T- take that step um Mm -hmm. we have a course on participate called um uh uh, aber and it means express yourself in in uh, arabic and Hmm. it is about it starts out talking about stereotyping 
and recognizing that, you know, we, we, we start to stereotype because um, our, our human brains, we want to categorize and generalize. That's the first thing we want to do. And then next thing you know, you start stereotyping and, and lumping people together and thinking that all people who are like this are like, you know, have, are the same. And then the course kind of, and, and the curriculum kind of walk you through how slippery a slope it is from that stereotyping to um, discrim- prejudice, developing prejudices, and then dis- discrimination, and just overt policies of discrimination. And, wow. um, and, and that's just, it's just sort of maybe one way of looking at this this slippery slope. Well, if you, the, the course on participate is about doing a virtual exchange between a classroom in North America and a classroom somewhere in the Middle East and um, exploring that together and looking at how each uh, classroom stereotypes each other and then just mm. walking through that like, and, and just even looking at the process but also, that's sort of what's happening um, um, uh, in curriculum-wise. But what's also happening is relationships are being developed. These students are getting to know each other, and that's the that's the key part. They're developing yeah. community, and once you have that sort of a relationship like that with with someone who was supposedly so different from you, I don't think there's any turning back. I, and I, it's funny. Um, friend, friend of the pod, Noah, Noah Geisel, um, once on the podcast talked about um, language, mm. um, and how language learning. And you were a Spanish teacher, yes. so I think I, I imagine you understand this. And and um, Glenn, uh, who is our co-host on the podcast, another Spanish teacher. I'm surrounded by language teachers <laughs> all fantastic. the time, and and I can barely speak the one that I know. Um, <laughs> but. You know, I I truly believe that language and learning a language, learning a foreign language is a super powerful way to um, build community, um, develop empathy and understanding for other cultures and um, gives you an appreciation of of history. And um, I also think of um, my friend Rafrans Davis and um, she um, got into BTS, the, the, the pop group BTS, uh-huh. uh, the, the, the Korean pop group BTS. Right. And, and, and she learned Korean <laughs> so that she could be closer to that world. Oh, cool. uh, and that was her motivation for, for learning Korean. And um, <laughs> I found that absolutely fascinating. Um <laughs> And don't you think that that language is another way that we can um, grow to appreciate uh, other people's worlds and lives and cultures? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I when I was a Spanish teacher, I I can remember uh, one of my students saying to me, um, "Wow, uh, how come you're teaching us just a different word for everything? Why do we need another word for everything?" And and so for his in in his thinking that's all there was to it was you've got a cat and you've got a gato and why do you need this other word that you have to use a different accent you know and i thought wow i have to do a much better job at fleshing this out for my students that's how i got involved with virtual exchange and i realized my students need to meet others you know native speakers of this language 
And they need to see, no, this unlocks a whole rich world to you if you can speak another language. You could, yeah. you could learn German, and then all of the words are just one long word. That's right. That's right. There's my, there's my, there's my language joke for the day. Nailed boom, boom. it. Right. <laughs> I, I took a lot of history um, in, in my undergrad and uh, studied in particular, you know, um, the, the Holocaust and Nazi Germany. So I am familiar with, like, super long, super long words that are, like, you know, 20 characters long. Anyways, That's right. very, 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 very funny. Um, so so you've you've mentioned it a couple times and obviously I work for participate all of our audience knows at this point that I work okay. for participate so it's not like a secret uh or anything like that but you have an awesome community there um what type of listener um so people who are listening if we wanted them to think about whether they would like to to kind of connect with you join that community um and and see what's going on there what type of listener would be interested in um checking out that content um and what type of learning opportunities do you think they would find there oh i'm so glad you asked this question um because the the name of our community on participate is jusur to the Arab world. Uh, Jusur means a bridge. And um, uh, in in some ways, that could lead... I could imagine someone glancing at the title of the community and thinking, well, I don't don't teach Arabic. I don't teach Arab studies. um, I don't really need that. And, mm. and, and maybe pass it by. And, um, I, and, and really, um, what, uh, the community is about is, a bridge, building bridges across, um, uh, uh, cultures that are very different. Yes. And, um, and, and all of those really magical ways that we can do that. And so that's what we, that's what we're invested in is, is bringing to light lots of different ideas for how that can be done. The biggie is virtual exchange, and we really are pros. Like, we, we offer a couple of virtual exchange courses, sort of an easy on-ramp, 101. 102 is a deep dive. And then we offer five other courses that are really about um, specific projects. Uh, and they're super well scaffolded, and they're also connected to the sustainable development goals and the other um, sort of global work that we are we need to be doing right now, building bridges, connecting across difference to learn about each other and to learn how to work together because we got to learn to work together. It's all about collaboration, <laughs> right? Yeah, no, um, that's COVID. an under un, the under the understatement of the century, right, right there. The, or at least the understatement of twenty twenty, Jen. For real, so, um, yeah. yeah. The other thing we're really into is um, multimedia and media literacy, which oh, is a big topic right now. Um, you know, just just sort of helping um, teachers get the resources they need to um, specifically help students weed through um, and recognize. Um, uh, good resources, find good resources for information, recognize truth and variations on truth, and also see bias uh, and and Mm. recognize bias that they come across in the incredible, you know, fire hose of media that's coming at us every day. 
Awesome. So, Jennifer, how can people connect with you personally? Where's the best place to reach out if they want to connect with you? Oh, fantastic. Well, a really good way to connect with me is um, through the Juicer community. You know, it's free, free, free. Uh, you just get a membership to uh, participate. You join the Juicer community. And I'm on there every day. So messaging back and forth with me is, is super easy. And, mm -hmm. um, I also invite people to, um, uh, connect with me at Jen Geist at qfi.org, J-E-N-N-G-E-I-S-T at qfi.org. Um, and I'm, awesome. you know, I'm on there all the time too. That's one thing about working virtually is, uh, you work kind of 24 <laughs> seven. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, uh, so we will put the link to the QFI community, um, in the show notes so that people can go there um, and, and check that out. Uh, Jennifer Geist, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me today. Total pleasure. Thank you, Mike. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Nevada educator Kyle Anderson is a veteran educator and the co-host of the Beer EDU podcast and the podcast by Sons of Technology. And you can now add author to the list of Kyle's accomplishments with the release of To the Edge, Successes and Failures Through Risk-Taking. Welcome to On Education, Kyle. Thank you, gentlemen. It's an honor. The honor is definitely all ours. Um... Kyle, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience and um, tell us what brought you to us today? So, yeah, like you said, my name is Kyle Anderson. I am currently a special education teacher, and I live in Las Vegas, Nevada. I've been teaching. This is my 16th year now. I taught for the first 11 years. I taught mostly social studies. It was U.S. history, AP U.S. history, government, things of that nature. And then I did a short stint as a technology coach. And then I was a administrator for a short time. Decided administration just wasn't my thing at that time in my life. Uh, the only job available when I wanted to get away from administration was a PE position. So I did that for a year. And then I actually moved from Las Vegas for a couple of years to Reno, Nevada. My wife was going to grad school in Reno. And when I moved up there, there weren't any jobs available except in special education. And First of all, I needed to get a job. And second, I had been the general ed side of co-teaching for several years, and I really enjoyed it. So I saw it as another opportunity to uh, do something really cool. So I got a master's in special education, and now uh, this is my third year teaching in special ed. And I am kind of wondering why I didn't do this right from the beginning, because I really thoroughly enjoy special ed now. That that is pretty awesome. That's a that's quite a journey of all of the different the gambit. You've roles, run the gambit. You know, all the different types of roles in education, which is fantastic. So with your experiences, let's start the conversation by talking ed tech tools, specifically learning management systems. Your dis district, I believe, recently switched to Canvas. And so I was like, Oh, I'd actually like to know more about that. What are your first impressions? And then I also I think I know the answer to this, but I'll ask it anyway. How hard is it to switch to a different LMS? So I've been kind of a techie for a very long time. And the school I worked at in Las Vegas back in, I believe it was 2012 or 2013, my one of my schools that I worked at was selected as 
a pilot school for, at the time, GAFE, Google Apps for Education. Mm -hmm. And I fell in love with it at that time and really got to know it well. Well, then when the district went and decided to go for the entire district, all 450 plus schools in our district, which where I'm at is the fifth largest district in the United States at well over 300,000 students. So they decided to go Google for the entire district after these pilot schools tried it out. Well, then I was in demand for helping train people on different Google tools, uh, Drive and Gmail, um, apps and extensions, things of that nature. So that's when I found out I really enjoyed working with adult learners as well was when we got started getting into that. And that led me to the tech coach route for a short time uh, when I did that. So I remember very distinctly going into the 2014-15 school year. I had tried a couple things in the past where I was doing assignments and activities using Google Calendar wasn't the best thing ever. And my district had kind of like a shell of teacher websites that was like my district's name apps or something like that. And again, it wasn't very robust, wasn't great. And I was looking for something to help get me going to help just kind of digitize my class a little bit more, cut down on paper and really just try to be more creative with what I was doing. And I get this email about a week before school starts from Google saying, try Google Classroom, this brand new platform (laughs) that we're rolling out here starting next week. And my opinion was, you know what? It can't be worse than what I'm already doing. Let's give it a shot. And I fell in love with Google Classroom. And as it developed over time, it became even more robust. I mean, it's still not a full learning management system by any means, but it's still, if you look at what it was six years ago versus now, I like to call it um, feature deficient back then. Now it's a lot more uh, robust than it once was. Uh, So I got used to that. And then this year we go into our new school year and the district announces we are no longer going to use Google Classroom. We are going to start using Canvas. And Canvas is something that I did a training on it a few years ago as a learner. And when I was looking at it, it was one of those deals where like, I can see where this is a great tool, but yes. I'm already using Google Classroom. Why? Mm-hmm. What is going to make me want to switch to this? And it was a lot more cumbersome just posting assignments, yes. let alone building anything else in it. And I just I kind of put it off and said, you know, I, I don't want to do this because Google Classroom is something that is free. I already have it. I know how to use it. Move along. Well, then as time goes on, I take a handful of classes where as a student, I'm using Canvas and I'm seeing things on the student end and I'm realizing, wow, this is a really great tool. But once again, I don't have the time right now to really learn a new system in order to put stuff out to my students. And then on top of that, why, if all my students are using Google Classroom with all their other teachers, am I going to throw this curveball at them? But then all of a sudden, when my district announces that we're going to do Canvas this year, then it was all of a sudden, well, we have to do this. But luckily, because... I am technologically proficient in a lot of areas, and I had a little bit of experience with it. The canvas kind of came along quite easily to me. I mean, I'm not an expert by any means. I'm not sure I'd be comfortable enough saying that I could go out and lead canvas trainings as like a canvas expert or something like that. But when people have questions and they contact me, I usually can help them through it. Mm -hmm. And it was actually kind of funny. I moved back to Las Vegas a few months ago, right in the middle of quarantine, by the way, which moving in the middle Ooh. of COVID-19, well, that was That's a, a nightmare. nightmare huh? 
Oh, it was oh. an absolute nightmare. The first time I set foot in my new place was the day I got the keys. I hadn't even seen it before I signed a lease. We did everything via video from 400 some miles away. It was, yeah, it was not fun experience at all. But so the new school that I started working at, they asked me if I'd be part of the technology team because they had heard about my experiences. And then I had talked about that in my interview with the school as well. And when we get around to preparing Canvas trainings for the teachers at my school, uh, I kind of got overlooked as they were assigning the different levels and everything that was left was the expert level. And my assistant principal <laughs> that was over top of it said, um, will you lead the expert ones? I go, you know what? I'll spend the weekend learning Canvas and I'll lead the expert I'm one. I'm doing then. it. So, yeah. so, <laughs> That's so awesome. <laughs> yeah. So it's been, it's definitely been a transition for me. It hasn't been so bad because again, I, I've experienced in different tech tools, but you're an expert. I, I, I again, I don't want to say I'm an expert though, but I'm, a, I'm an expert according to that session I led at my school. Right. But, um, I can definitely see where there are a lot of people that are very frustrated. We're talking about people that they barely knew how to use Google Classroom, and now all of a sudden they're learning this tool that is way more robust but way more complicated at the same oh, time to sure. learn. And and we were very fortunate where I'm at where we had the first two weeks where we were supposed to have students, but we actually had training where mm -hmm. we spent that whole two weeks learning how to use Canvas and building courses and different things where I know there's districts out there that said – you're showing up on Thursday for your first day. Monday, you have students. You got to build what you can between now and then. And I yeah. was very fortunate that that was not the case. And I think a lot of teachers where I'm at are becoming more accustomed to Canvas, but there's still a lot of headaches and nightmares and I'm sure tears coming from a lot of people. Yeah. Well, I mean, learning a learning management system in the midst of a pandemic is not the ideal situation at all it actually um the thing i thought of just a second ago was um when we spoke a long time ago probably two years ago we spoke to damon torgerson from aludo and and he talked about um initiative overload or or the idea that educators can just get overwhelmed with professional development and um, you know, um, new features and technologies that they have to just constantly be learning. Um, and it, it can't be e easy. Uh, it, it's not easy in the best of times. And uh, this is by no means anywhere close <laughs> to the best of times. Um, no, if, you haven't, if you know, if you haven't noticed at all. Um, so I can imagine it was, um, it's been difficult, but kudos to you for taking on, you know, the expert role and um, owning it. So good, good on you. Um, you tell, and it's funny because it leads right into this question. You tell a great story in your book uh, about your evolution as a leader. Um, and in particular, I love that you called out your mentors, your influences by name, even, um, and, and referenced them, some leaders in your life, in your career that pushed you to be a leader yourself. And you've talked about how you um, you became a tech coach and even dabbled in administration. Talk a little bit maybe about, you know, those folks that, that guided you, maybe if there's a commonality between them all, um, that, that, you know, pushed you to be a leader and, and helped you grow and develop as a leader yourself. Absolutely. So, just to, to back up a little bit, I just want to kind of highlight that Go, going back to my early years as a student and even going into 
my years in college and whatnot, I didn't really think of myself as much of a leader. I wasn't necessarily a follower, but I didn't look at myself as somebody that people would come to for questions or issues or whatever. So that was something that it developed later on down the road. And when I mentioned people in my book, like Glenda Getting and Tina Statuki and Ron Kamen, who were all administrators that I worked with, and I use the word with and not for, because a good leader, in my opinion, is someone that you work with and not for. Whereas four is that's somebody that's giving you directives and expecting you to follow directions to what they envision. Whereas somebody that you work with is somebody that is giving you freedom to do things, freedom to make mistakes and freedom to give you guidance and assurance that you're going to grow and get better at things. And Glenda, Tina and Ron were just three of those people that that's the common thing right there with those three is that they were people I worked with and not for. They were people that allowed me to try different things. And if I fell on my face, it was, okay, dust yourself off. Let's let's work on a different way of doing things. And, and Tina in particular was one that she really was checking in on me quite a bit, uh, not necessarily because she needed to, but because she genuinely cared about the people that she worked with and wanted them to be better. And she knew that by doing that, by pushing people, that meant that there's a good chance that you wouldn't be working with her for much longer. But her whole philosophy was, I would rather see you go off away from where I'm at and do great things versus stay stagnant with where mm-hmm. you're at. So I really have to give a lot of credit to those three to not only what I am today as an educator, but really just writing the book in general, because I never thought this wasn't some sort of like bucket list thing that you know, you talk to some authors sometimes like, yeah, I always knew I wanted to write a book. This was something that really only developed in my head three, four years ago that I wanted to write a book. And if it wasn't for those three and a lot of the other great leaders in my life, I never would have sat down and started writing this book. It, it reminded me when I was reading through that um, that that section on leadership and, and in particular how you reflected on your leaders, on on the mentors that you um, have worked with, um, that there are thousands hundreds of thousands of educators that'll go through their entire careers without any sense of affirmation, um, recognition, or relationships that push them to be better. And I can't help but reflect, and this isn't necessarily a question, but um, I wouldn't mind some thoughts on, you know, how just how much better would the world of education be if every educator felt the way that you felt about the people that you worked with, um, if they felt the same um, affirmation and had that same mentor, mentoree experience that you had, can you, I mean, can you imagine? Oh, it's it, it'd be, it's mind blowing to think how much different education would be because I also talk in my book about leaders, and I throw up air quotes on that be, that were just they were not good leaders, and I dreaded going to work on mm. a daily basis and. You know, there's also the story in the book about the leader that I had when I lost my brother at the age of 25, who was in the army and the reaction that that principal put my way when I notified him that my 25 year old brother died suddenly. And I'll never forget that. I still to this day, that was over 10 years ago. I still remember standing in his office with tears in my eyes and my voice and my hand shaking 
talking about my brother and how I just learned that he died. And his reaction was not, I'm sorry, not what can I do for you? It, it was more of like, a, well, I understand that you're probably going to a funeral. Just know that wherever you go and however long it takes, you only get five days bereavement after that's non-paid. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. And oh. I mean, to this day, like I'm, I'm getting a pit in my stomach right now just saying that because of I course. just, I can't even like imagine being so heartless to somebody about it. And then on top of that, the icing on the cake with that exchange was it was finals week and grades were due for report cards. And he topped it off with make sure your grades are done before you go to the airport. And Jeez. I just, to this day, I, I don't know how I would react if I ever saw this person. No, I would like I to think not. that I want, I want to take the high road, but at the same time though, like I said, I'm, I'm getting a little worked up about thinking about it right now, just because it was such a traumatizing experience. So, but the problem is that there are so many teachers that work for people like that, where they just, there, there's no heart and for them as human beings, it's just about the job. And there's the people that are going to work every day, miserable. And I mean, a friend of mine, even she stayed at the same school for a long time because it was in a school that was in a very, it was in a low income neighborhood, a lot of crime in the neighborhood, gang activity, uh, students that we had several students over the course of the years that I was there when I worked with her that, that died in violent encounters. And mm. she stayed there for a very long time because she felt that if she left, she was letting down the kids. And I completely understand that. But at the same time, though, when leadership at the school makes it that much harder for you to be there, it just it you have to take care of yourself at some point as well. Yes. And it's something that I didn't realize until later on uh, about taking care of myself. I, I had a long time where I struggled with depression quite a bit. And I talk about this in the book as well. Hmm. And what really drove me to finally seek out help. And I'm in a much better place now. And I'm more conscious about taking care of myself. And uh, even though this is not an ideal situation, uh, the uh, the COVID situation that we're in now, I feel I'm in a better place than a lot of, say, colleagues and other educators around the world, because I have that skill set now, recognizing self-care taking yeah. care of myself and seeking out help when I need it, where that's a skill set that a lot of people, they just don't have. And it's only being exasperated because of the situation that we're in right now. It's a perfect transition to this next question. Cause I recently, I just read your recent blog post um, and you made a statement that I think will resonate with all educators right now at this moment in time. Basically it says teaching from my home in a 100% virtual environment has sapped any desire to do anything outside of my contracted schoolwork. And I can just see in the faces of my colleagues and the, the way that I feel and the way that my wife, uh, who's also a teacher and the conversations that we have, how accurate this statement is and so you have set aside many items that you found passion in uh working on your blog obviously twitter chats of uh, virtual conferences um for those out there listening to this podcast though and i can tell that you do have some, like <laughs> an answer to this can you see a light at the end of this go COVID tunnel and can you give us some you know <laughs> some inspiration to kind of say you know what it's Give us some dark hope, right Anderson. Now. We it's need dark. some hope. <laughs> but I can see something there at the end. Because I, 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 as as I went to the end of your blog post, that's how it felt. It felt at the end like, you know what? There is a light at the end of the tunnel. I think you even write those words. 
the thing that gives me the most hope right now is conversations I'm having with students. Mm-hmm. When you talk to students and they say, I really wish we were back at school. Yeah. That gives me hope. Does it mean that we're going to be back into a face-to-face environment soon? Where I'm at, I don't think so. Las Vegas is still a place where we're, we're in a better place now than we were a couple of months ago, but the, the city of Las Vegas is still averaging several hundred cases a day mm-hmm. and, and a handful of deaths per day from COVID-19. The health department in Southern Nevada is still recommending that we stay at home for the time being as much as people want to go back. And sure. I I was just saying this to somebody the other day that prior to COVID-19, I was never a germaphobe, hmm. but I also hmm. didn't like large crowds unless it was on my terms. So okay. I didn't, I don't like going into like busy streets or busy stores, but I'll go to a concert sure. where there's tons <laughs> of people right on top of you because it's yeah. on my terms at that point. COVID-19 has really turned me into a germaphobe for one. And then it is really... When I go into a store, when that person starts creeping into that that bubble, I start getting vis- visibly upset about it. And mm. while I have not like turned around and said anything necessarily to people, I have. I mean, I have before said like, "Hey, you know, what? you're a little close right now," but I haven't like quote unquote gone off on somebody yet. But I have felt myself that anxiety creeping up at times as a result of this. But that being said, I will stay in the virtual environment and work from home. As long as I have to, if it means that my family is safe, okay, my health be damned, but my daughter, my son, and my wife, I don't want to go to school and expose myself to bring it home and expose them. Yes. So I will do it as long as I possibly have to. At the same time, though, that doesn't mean I have to like this situation. This is a miserable situation. It's awful. Students are not engaged the way they should be. Students are not participating the way they should be. Some teachers aren't engaged or participating the way they should be because this, for lack of a better way to say it, this sucks. Yes. And there's there's nothing we can do about it. So a good friend of mine, Brent Coley, on his podcast, Teaching Tales, said recently that – very similar, but he said at the same time, though, try to find a silver lining to everything. Yeah. And right now, the silver lining is I get to see my kids all day, every day. And I have a friend who's out of work right now. His two kids are working from home on school as well. He brings his two kids here. We, we take care of ourselves. Uh, we, you know, wash hands, do everything to prevent everything. But I get to see one of my best friends and his two kids and my two children all day at home. I didn't get mm-hmm. that when we were in the regular environment. Mm-hmm. If I got to see one of my best friends once every two months prior to this, I was sure. lucky. And now I get to see him every day, uh, obviously being safe about things. So. I do know that this will come to pass, whether that's next week, next month, or three years from now, I don't know. But eventually, it will get better, and we're all going to be better for this because you can't define adversity any better than the situation that we're all going through right now. Mm. And once we get through this, we're going to be that much better. Teachers are going to have the tools now to be better in the face-to-face environment, Snow days are a thing of the past because <laughs> now we can just do all this stuff from home. And <laughs> and uh, I just, again, it, it's a dire situation every day. And, and it's terrible when government leadership around the country, around the world, really, isn't taken as seriously as they should. 
But again, we're going to be better for this in the long run. And I'm looking forward to that. That's what brings me hope. Kyle, we live in, I think it's an understatement, pretty polarized times. Um, And this puts educators in a pretty tough spot. Um, Obviously, educators have thoughts and opinions on society and, you know, what's happening in the world right now. Um, But it's also not hard to get in trouble uh, for even the smallest comment in some districts. Um, And that being said, I think that if there was a time to stand up and be heard, it might be now Um, in the wake of kind of the, especially the social justice kind of reckoning that Americans are facing related to race in the United States. So since we're talking a little bit about, you know, risk taking and your book is about, risk-taking. This feels like a risk that a lot of teachers are facing today. It is a... um, It's danger all around. Um, When... When is... When do you think standing up for social justice, for Black Lives Matter and LGBTQ issues is more important? Um, I'd love your thoughts on, you know, this seems like one of those ultimate risks at a time that is, it's perilous, um, especially in a state like Nevada, that is a kind of a, a purple state, um, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, I, I'd be interested in your take on, on, on this sort of thing. Years ago, I, I remember when the unrest unfolded in Ferguson, Missouri, after mm-hmm. Michael Brown was murdered. I remember saying something on my social media feeds along something along the lines of enough is enough. I'm sick and tired of uh, this happening. We need to be better. Something along those lines. I don't remember the exact words. And I remember somebody that I grew up near uh, a gentleman that was older than me. He was a state police officer in my hometown. And he responded to me, basically calling me all sorts of names and calling me out, uh, degrading me as a person over those thoughts. And it really made me retract, not retract the statement. I didn't delete it from my uh, social media, but it really made me hesitant to say something after that because of the way that this person made me feel. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to this summer with the murder of George Floyd. I the, at this point, I said, no, enough is enough. And I don't care what people have to say at this point, because it, enough is enough. And it is time that things need to change. And when it comes to the protests that were happening, I, I am 100 percent in support of the protest that is happening, because, again, it, it does have to change. And as a white man, I can definitely be better about the different things that I say about the stereotypes and the biases that I have. And I have been actively trying to be better about those by, by reading, by talking to people of color in education, uh, to those, uh, that are LGBTQ, just trying to learn more and be better. And I wouldn't say I'm necessarily the most outspoken person. I'm not necessarily on social media on the daily calling people out or posting things of that nature. But those things that are egregious that happen to come across my feed, 
I have found myself to be calling those things out a lot more. And then suddenly I'm not seeing that person on my feed anymore because I'm probably being blocked for calling mm-hmm. them out. Or yeah. I have started to kind of weed out some of that toxicity out of my feed as well, because it's not only do I not want to associate myself with those kinds of things, but at the same time, though, when you just see that toxicity over and over again, it takes a toll on you no matter how much you want to try to avoid it. So I have found myself in the past few months not only becoming better by learning more and reading more and interacting more, but also by trying to actively take that toxicity out of my life through social media and other aspects of my life as well. So it is a risk. You know, Mm -hmm. you are risking, especially as an educator, you may work in a district where you're told that you cannot display a Black Lives Matter emblem on, say, a profile picture or or talk about these things with your students. But I'm also in the mindset that I would much rather ask for forgiveness later on. And even then, though, my forgiveness isn't going to be like, I'm so sorry. It's going to be, why aren't we allowed to do this? I'm going to question it even further because these are things that have to happen. And most recently, we had Columbus Day here in the United States, which is a concept that is very controversial uh, Mm -hmm. because of the impact that Columbus had on the world. And then also just the outright myths regarding his legacy in the world. And just actively trying to work to teach in a way that is more truthful and more, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, Brutally honest Mm -hmm. is, is what we're looking for here, where you, you want to talk about Columbus, quote unquote, discovering America. First of all, he never set foot in America. And second of all, he basically showed up and enslaved a population of people mm. that had no idea that Europeans existed. And those that didn't comply, they were ravaged by disease and practically wiped off the face of the earth as a result yeah. of that. And that's the brutal truth that a lot of people just don't see. And it's about trying to be better to spread those brutal truths versus just keeping up with the status quo and trying to stay in the middle as much as possible. Now, I'm not necessarily a person that enjoys controversy and getting into arguments or whatever, but if it's egregious, I'm definitely going to call it out. And I don't really care about what that reaction is going to be because I'd rather fight for what's right than what's popular. For sure. So, Kyle, how can people connect with you online to continue the conversation or even can you direct us to your the book and being able to purchase that? Yes, absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. So you can find me on Twitter at Anderson EdTech. And then I'm also on Instagram at the same thing. My book has an Instagram at to the edge edu. And the book can be found on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And then thank you to Edumatch Publishing, um, who gave me the opportunity to publish To the Edge, Successes and Failures Through Risk-Taking. So you can find it on those platforms. And then my writing, I I try to write on a regular basis on my blog. But as I mentioned um, in my last blog that you brought to the attention, Glenn, uh, haven't been writing as much lately, but uh, AndersonEdTech.net is where I write at. And it's a lot of... Uh, education, a little bit of my life. Sometimes I get snarky about politics and pop culture and stuff. And uh, I, I love to write. I have a lot of fun with it. It's been, I've been going strong with it for over five years. And uh, I just, like I said, I just don't have as much time to write right now. But uh, yeah, I can be found at any of those places. 
Listen, if Americans were smart, they would just, instead of doing Columbus Day, they would just have Thanksgiving like we did. <laughs> hey, you know what? Um, I had a friend in college that was from Canada. I got two Thanksgivings one year when his parents came into See, town. That's and, a win uh, right there. They hijacked my kitchen in my apartment for the entire day. When I came back from football practice, there was a Thanksgiving dinner waiting for me in October, and it was amazing. That's how you do it. Kyle Anderson, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been an honor. Thanks for listening to On Education. My name is Glenn Irvin. My co-host is Mike Washburn. On Education is part of the On Podcast Media Network. You can listen to this show and many others by great educators like Monica Burns, Mike Matera, Tisha Richmond, and many more by visiting onpodcastmedia.com. Want to get in touch with us? Check out our website, oneducationpodcast.com. You can tweet us at oneducationpod. Mike is at Mr. Washburn on Twitter, and I can be found on Twitter at Irv Spanish. You can find us on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash oneducationpod. We're also on Instagram at oneducationpod. If you're enjoying the show and think others would too, we would be thrilled if you shared it with them. Please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. When you leave a rating, it gives our rankings a boost. This helps others discover the show. We want to thank our presenting sponsor, Participate, for supporting us. Check out Participate.com to learn more about them. Thanks as always for listening. Stay awesome and see you soon.